1: That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. This week, the United Nations Conference of the Parties on Climate, or as it's better known, COP28, kicked off in Dubai. I pray with all my heart that COP28 will be another critical turning point towards Genuine transformational action at a time when already, as scientists have been warning for so long, we are seeing alarming tipping points being reached. Over the next week or so, leaders from around the world, senior ministers and officials from 198 countries will come together to hash out deals and compromises with the intended goal of tackling the climate emergency. But there will be one big name missing, from the attendees list, President Joe Biden.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris will lead the American delegation, including U.S. climate envoy
1: John Kerry. Earlier this week, the White House announced President Biden is skipping the event. Biden pledged to make the fight against climate breakdown one of his top priorities. And so, folks, we got to listen to the scientists and the economists and the national security experts. They all tell us this is code red. But the news of his absence from this year's conference has frustrated activists. So what message does it send to Americans and to people around the world that the President of the United States is not going to COP. With US oil and gas production set to reach record highs this year, has Joe Biden done enough to tackle the climate emergency? And for the second time in as many months, has Biden angered enough younger voters that many will abandon him? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
0: The climate crisis feels like someone's writing your future for you and that you don't have an option. and don't have the ability to breathe clean air in a sense because... This is
1: Jerome Foster, a climate activist who, a couple of years ago, became the youngest ever White House advisor.
0: I was looking at like a landscape painting and, and a lot of older people were thinking about it and thinking about nature as a refuge and a place for escape and where time feels endless. But for young people, the environment doesn't feel that way anymore. And as a young person, I felt that very deeply. And understanding that nature felt like something that was a ticking time bomb and felt like every moment I had to grab onto because maybe it won't be here next year. And that is a very scary feeling growing up. And I think that is what sparked my generation to say that we we, we can't live like this anymore.
1: Jerome's journey to the White House started unusually, with him standing outside the building with a placard following in the footsteps of the likes of Greta Thunberg.
0: On my first Friday, it was pouring down, raining, like it was flooding up to my ankles. And then right after I ended my strike, the it, the sun came right out. At the time, there was only 10 to 20 young people that were climate striking. And after a few weeks, I realized that this was something much bigger than I realized and that it wasn't just me that was feeling these emotions, but it was a large percentage of, of my generation. With the fact that we were skipping school, we're saying our education is on the line and that we will... Forego our 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 future and our careers for making a statement like this. It, it allowed us to be able to, as a generation, show the world that we that the world has to do something about this and has to do something with urgency and decisiveness.
1: So, after striking for a, a, over a year, what happened exactly in 2021 that brought you inside the White House
0: during the climate strikes? During the the time in which Greta Thunberg came to Washington D.C. to join. I had launched an organization called One Million of Us in which we worked on the goal of mobilizing one million young people to register and shout to vote by the 2020 elections. And we had an entire coalition with other organizations in which we stopped at every presidential stop on every presidential candidate's way through the country and said, you need to prioritize climate justice. And from that, we were able to mobilize over 1.8 million young people across the country to turn out and to really show that we will put our votes where our words are. And not even two months later, I got a call from the White House that they wanted me to be a part of the Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And I was 18 years old and I was just leaving a class from college. And they said we would actually be working to provide recommendations to the whole of government, of, of all federal agencies, and working on what we could do to advance environmental justice in a way that isn't just about renewable energy, but it's also about looking and restoring the past damage that the climate crisis has already wrecked. And it was something we've been fighting for since 2016, I I'd feel like, for young people to actually be taken seriously in political spaces and for us to not just be something that they mention in a speech, but something that they have accountability to within an advisory council like this. And it, it was a moment of joy and, and also a moment of, of hope, in a sense, that we, that we could do a lot more
1: what a phone call to get and at the in that moment you became the youngest ever advisor at the White House as you've said you were just 18 when that call came but just just briefly explain to us what that in, entails what work you do on the White House environmental justice advisory council and we should obviously stress here that you're not speaking just to today as a spokesperson for the US government these are just your own views but what does it mean to be on that council what what, what work do you do
0: Yeah, so I cannot speak on behalf of the the White House itself, but I I am a private citizen advisor. And and what that means is the the first month that I joined in, in I think, March of 2021, we were working on the Justice40 initiative, which means that 40% of investment benefits go to frontline communities and disadvantaged communities that are being impacted by the climate crisis. So what that meant is that we had to do a lot of structural work to make sure those 40% investments went to those communities where you can actually identify what a disadvantaged community is on a, on, on a, on a very concrete level. And we had very short timelines of sometimes two to four weeks where we had to write a 40 page recommendation sheet and it turned into a hundred pages in referencing and referencing and and talking to friends who were in the environmental movement about what recommendations we should send and how they should send that money to communities. So that it actually reaches them. And it was sometimes nine hours of meetings um, that we'd, we, we'd go to and my, Professor was very mad at me for not going to class, but, but it, it was something that was I felt was very important to, to do. And basically every month from that March of 2021, we've been sending in recommendations on what they should do with regards to funding communities, making sure that they aren't investing in and in continuing to perpetuate the climate crisis. And people will have an image
1: of being a White House advisor. I'm sure you get this from friends a lot, where they just assume you stroll into the Oval Office, have a quick word with the president. Do you, <laughs> do you ever speak to President Biden directly? I think your laugh is telling me that no, you don't.
0: I've never um, had a conversation with President Biden. A lot of our work is just the paper. Like a lot of our conditions manifest their ways into um, paperwork in which the president will see and review, and, and we'll be on the kind of the first paragraph that he'll read about what actions we recommend he should take
1: through that work that you're describing, though, uh, that things do get done. So let's dive into that a bit. Some of the policies that the Biden administration has implemented. Um, can you just give us two or three examples of actual policy changes you and your colleagues on the council have actually implemented, made happen, uh, thanks to being there?
0: One thing I can really point to is, is the Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool, in which I talked about the Justice40 initiative, in which we're making sure like that 40% of investments go to frontline communities we have to first identify what is a disadvantaged community so that federal agencies can't distort that. So it continues to go to wealthier and wider communities that have historically received funding for the climate crisis to to be able to be insulated from it. Really what it's supposed to be is that if you log onto a website, you can see in your zip code where the funding is going. There's more examples of that within how we've, we've asked the federal government to to cap old oil wells that have been in indigenous and in Black communities that have been sitting there for sometimes 50 to 70 years. Um, we've also been working with communities on making sure they have cleanup projects within military industrial sites, which have had chemical spills in, 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 in communities at highest risk of cancer because of the government's lack of, of, of care for, for their cleanup and, and caring for the environment.
1: And what's fascinating here is that in what you're explaining there, that is environment is, as you're defining it there in the White House, is not just a matter of bringing down carbon emissions. It touches on all these other kind of justice issues, including poverty, including, as you said, discrimination with, uh, you know, minority areas that have been less well served. But a lot of attention has gone on big policies, like, for example, the Build Back Better Act and famously the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change, ever. Lower utility bills, creating American jobs, leading the world to a clean energy future. I visited- These are the big flagship pieces of legislation of the Biden administration. And several of them uh, have incorporated elements that uh, address the climate crisis. Uh, And Joe Biden himself talks about them a lot in that context. Can you give us just a couple of examples of how those big set piece pieces of legislation, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act, have helped in terms of climate and environment?
0: Thinking about the climate crisis in three main ways of the past, present and future, is something that's very crucial in the work that we do. And understanding that when we look at the future, a lot of what the legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act and, 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 and the, the other big legislations like that do is oftentimes in tackling ways in which we can decarbonize our existing infrastructure and giving subsidies for people to be able to transition to electric vehicles and, and speed up that transition to reach a, a very equitable timeline in which it it is realistic for us to be able to reach that 1.5 degree target that we must reach. And that's the future aspect of it. But within the climate crisis and, and understanding solutions to it, we have to think about the past and the present. And that for us to have gotten here as a society, we had to have certain mechanisms in our economy that allowed us to be able to prioritize the, the exploitation for profit over the existence of nature. And we've come from a society in which slavery was the beginning mechanism in which we thought about exploitation, where we could think we could exploit people and and, and cultures limitlessly with no cost. But now we're exploiting nature limitlessly and thinking there's no cost and thinking that the forest is only valuable for the wood that it produces, but not for the oxygen that it gives us. And thinking about that the world has something greater than an economic value, but a social and health and well-being value that we don't take into account often at all. It's about rebuilding the communities that have been impacted by natural disasters. And the federal government had done nothing to rebuild them in a meaningful way.
1: And indeed, people talk about the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act invested or invests around $340 billion in investment and tax breaks, uh, which could and is meant to make the USA world leader in making the stuff that leads to renewable energy and uh, and clean energy. And so that's, you know, many people say that's a game changer in the business of getting the whole world onto cleaner technology. Now, what about those decisions that the Biden administration has made that maybe you don't agree with? I'm thinking here about, for example, the Willow project. And just explain to our listeners what that is and why that was something you wished had not been passed.
0: Yes, so the Willow Project is a project that President Biden approved earlier this year that would be equivalent to increasing the U.S.'s emissions by 4%. And with the U.S. committing to getting to net zero within the next few decades, it is completely counterintuitive to their their actions. And the Willow Project has been the largest oil and gas leasing on U.S. federal land.
1: My strong inclination was to disapprove of it across the board. But... The advice I got from counsel was that if that were the case, I may very well lose in court and lose that case in court to the oil company and then not be able to do what I really want to do beyond that.
0: There was a massive backlash of young people using social media to basically state why they are mad about President Biden continuing to be on the side of fossil fuels and only really paying lip service and, and giving cheap talk to what he promises to do. There's a massive groundswell of people on TikTok who showed their concern. And then in the, the council, we said, why don't we use that power and send a letter to the president? This isn't what we should be doing. We should be changing our actions and we should be changing the status quo, not continuing in ramping up, going into battle with the phosphate industry. That has led to a, a, a decrease in the size of the Willow Project. But we don't want that. We want to complete an utter reversal of their action to permit this this oil and gas project because it's, it's it's so insidious in thinking that you can have it both ways in which you can go and spell with the fossil industry and then go and make a speech about how the climate crisis is destroying entire communities. You have to be on what side? And the question to Joe Biden is what side are you on?
1: And what do you make of this decision by Joe Biden not to attend Uh, COP 28 in Dubai. Of course, other US officials will be there. We know that attending minister, uh, there'll be attending meetings, they'll be giving talks, but not the president himself. And we've yet to see an official explanation as to why he's not going. There've been some rumours that it's because he needs to focus on the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. But then there's another advisor saying that wasn't the case. Whatever the reason, to you, Jerome, how does it look
0: that Joe Biden is not going to be there? It's very disappointing for a US president who has is representing a country that has historic responsibility for decarbonizing because they have been the, the largest emitter for so many years, even though they're the second largest emitter, they have been the first for so long. And I feel like it's a moment of, of understanding that he has a responsibility at COP28.
1: Would it ever lead you this decision? Would it ever lead you to say it's best for you to resign your place on the White House Council?
0: No, the White House Environmental Council is is very nationally focused. And I think the US has good intention within the individuals that work within the country. And I think actions like the Willow Project and him not attending COP28 and him continuing to lease oil and gas, that is something that we have to continue to fight against. And if we're not in these rooms, then we're back at the position in which we're striking in front of the White House and begging for them to listen to us. But now we have real kind of leverage to be able to demand change. That, that, that is something we haven't had before. And I think that is why we have to continue pushing, continue, continue to be loud and aggressive within our ask for them to really be the climate president like he said he, he will be. It's shaping up that he isn't being that if he continues down this path.
1: Our focus on this podcast is is the politics of these things, and there is real politics here because a crucial constituency in Joe Biden getting elected in twenty twenty was uh, young voters. Young voters may, you know, in some ways made the difference, and yet there's research now from the Pew Research Center polling of Americans. Uh, earlier, taken earlier this summer, be, before the blow, as it may be seen, of this decision not to go to COP28, where a majority of Democrats, aged between 18 to 29, that's right, the group that you fall into, saying that the Biden administration could be doing a whole lot more on climate change as an issue. We, you know, one suspects they will now say that in even bigger numbers now that he's staying away. In terms of the political price that the president will pay for some of these decisions, like choosing to stay away, Joe, what do you think? Do you think this decision of the president will ultimately hurt him? And I mean it particularly in terms
0: of your age group. This will hurt his political ambitions because young people are very keen to understanding that it's not just about giving a speech. It's about the actions that he makes. and. it it feels very hurtful for our generation. It feels like it's a deep cut because we put our trust and we put our vote into him. A lot of us voting for the first time, like myself, in a president that said he would do something. And this is a heavy political toll because he should be doing a lot more. All their calls to actions have gone ignored. And they continue to go go ignored, even though he had countless, countless years to do something. I think over this next year, we'll really see what happens. And we'll see that, he must fulfill on his promises. I think that's the one thing that any president must do is fulfill their promises, understand and give the people a sense of assurance that he has their back. And young people don't feel like that at the moment. I think that is what has to radically change is him showing some authenticity within his actions.
1: We mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks back that he was paying a price with younger voters for his position on the current um, Middle East conflict you've now told us why there is a price to pay for not seeming to do enough on the climate is it your sense that there will be enough younger voters disenchanted by all this that they will even consider well you tell me but voting republican backing potentially donald trump or someone like jill stein who ran in the past for the green party there are other third party independent candidates cornell west Do you see younger voters not just perhaps staying at home, and that could cost Biden dearly enough, but actually voting for another candidate? How how likely do you think those scenarios could be centrally related to this position, this stance, as you've been sketching out, on the environment, or on climate?
0: I think being quite honest, it is quite easy for President Biden to get back into favour with young people. I think you have another year. To, to do some good. And I think that is what will change everything in that the other candidates, the other people have a track record of of just speaking and spewing hatred and vitriol that is more divisive than ever. And I think it is more important for him to understand that he has the opportunity to make change and not just worry about, well, is it too late for me to take action? It's not too late. You have a year to to make good on these promises, stop this continual of of making 10 steps forward and then making 30 steps backwards, in which he is kind of playing both sides. And no one, no one is, is going to be pleased when you're not authentic to any side or any people, because you have to be very centered in the fact that young people need climate action for their own sake, for their own future, for their own children's future. And I think that's very important for him to know that, that he must make good on these promises in that next year to, to really make an impact.
1: Jerome Foster, thank you so much for speaking with me for Politics Weekly America. Thank you for having me. And that is all from me for this week. For more on COP28, do listen to Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly UK. My colleague John Harris is joined by the Green MP Caroline Lucas and the former Conservative Energy Minister Chris Skidmore. And they'll be looking at the UK's road to net zero and how much difference COP summits can really make. And if you have a couple of minutes to spare and you do like this podcast, Please do us a very big favour and rate or review it wherever you find us. It really does help us a lot. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer this week, Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.